What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Primetime Sports Podcast, hosted by Joey Malari. So today I'm going to talk about the MLB trade deadline and give you guys my reactions on who I saw as a winner, who I saw as a loser, and who I saw in the middle of being a winner and a loser at the trade deadline. Some teams stayed put, like the Boston Red Sox, for the most part, in the New York Yankees. Some teams are aggressive, like the Texas Rangers, Houston Astros, and Los Angeles Angels. I'll give you guys my breakdown of who I saw as a winner and loser, but to start off in this episode, I'm going to talk about the Red Sox and where they currently stand going into the three-game series starting tonight at Fenway Park against the Toronto Blue Jays. Right now, the Red Sox are two and a half games back of the Toronto Blue Jays for the last wildcard spot in the American League. So three games this weekend are obviously huge games here against the Blue Jays. Tonight, it'll be James Paxton on the mound for the Red Sox versus Alec Manoa. Manoa has been struggling on the season, a 5.87 ERA with a 1.78 whip in a 2-8 record. In his first two years, he was great, was elite, 3.22 ERA as a rookie, and then a 2.24 ERA last season. So his first two seasons, he was unreal, and now he's really hit a junior year slump in year three. Since his return from being demoted to the Florida Complex League, he has made four starts with a 4.34 ERA in those four outings, with 20 strikeouts to 12 walks and 18 to two-thirds innings pitched. In his last 12.1 innings, and those are over his last three starts, he's had 12 strikeouts to 12 walks. So he's obviously still struggled with control. Even with being sent down, coming back up, control has still been an issue for him. There are a good amount of hitters in this Red Sox lineup that have experience against him. A good amount of them have hits against him in his career. Casas is 2-for-5 against him in his career. Jared Durant's 2-for-7 with a double against Manoa in his career. And then Alex Verdugo, who has had beef with Alec Manoa in the past, is 8-of-19 against Manoa in his career with two doubles, a home run, a 421 batting average, and a 684 slugging percentage. So Verdugo is obviously going to want to have a good game tonight, especially considering Manoa and him do have a history uh, in the past. I would say the Red Sox need to win two of three games in this series especially considering the Red Sox are 7-0 against Toronto in the year. To win another two games here, that's eight games you have an advantage of them over. Let's say the Red Sox are 2-1 in the series. That means it'd be 9-1 on the year against the Toronto Blue Jays, meaning an eight-game difference between the Blue Jays and the Red Sox. So that would obviously be huge. The Red Sox are struggling in the second half of the season since the All-Star break. They had 9-8, and eight, and as I said, they kind of need two of three in this series to get back on track. They had a tough series on the West Coast this past week, going 1-3 in the series against the San Francisco Giants, and then 1-3 in their series against the Seattle Mariners as well. So 2-4 and four in the last six games. So the Sox definitely need a good outing tonight to start the series and hopefully win another game. I think they need 2-3 of three in this weekend series to really get themselves back on track. And that would be huge to be 9-1 and one against the Blue Jays on the season. The Sox bats have been very hot against Toronto in the year. Averaging seven runs per game in their seven games against Toronto with the plus 20 run differential in those games. So hopefully the Sox can stay hot tonight at the plate. There could be some rain, though, so hopefully they can get the game in. But there is a chance this game could be canceled and maybe be a doubleheader maybe tomorrow, depending on the rain. Since it seems like every single Friday night, there is a rainy Friday at Fenway Park. The Red Sox haven't really been lucky this season with rain. Nobody really in Boston, the East Coast, has really been lucky with rain. It's really just been the summer of rain here in Boston, unfortunately. So it would just be another game that's rain-delayed and maybe even postponed to another day if tonight is bad like it looks like in the forecast. So we'll see what happens, but hopefully if the Sox do play, they do get a win tonight. So now I'm going to transition and talk about High and Bloom's comments earlier in the week after the trade deadline was over. He referred to the Red Sox as underdogs in his press conference. This is a line that was scrutinized on the radio all week. And I get it. From a fan's standpoint, you really don't want the Red Sox to be referred to as an underdog because this is a franchise that's very historic and obviously has a lot of history of winning 
and always being in the mix of spending the most money and winning games, especially late in the season, being around in the playoffs and making runs. That's just what Boston sports are all about, for the most part, winning and trying to make runs. And that's the issue here with this comment, referring to the Red Sox as underdogs. That gives fans the title that the Red Sox really don't feel like they could potentially make a run this season. And that's why a lot of fans are upset with that line from High and Blue, because they're saying, hey, we're underdogs, we know we are. So knowing where we stand in the playoff odds right now prevented us from being aggressive at the deadline. That's not really the line that most fans are going to want to hear. I think most fans would rather the Red Sox either sell completely or buy completely. I was on the buy side. I wish the Red Sox bought. But with that being said, I would rather the Red Sox not sell than have them buy at the deadline. And I didn't want them to buy heavy at the deadline. I wanted just to add a pitcher at the deadline and maybe see where that goes, especially with all the reinforcements the Red Sox have coming in. They're only two and a half games back right now of Toronto for the last wildcard spot. And with Trevor Story, Tana Houck, Garrett Whitlock, and Chris Sale coming back at some point, that's four b- big reinforcements right there. And I know a lot of fans don't want to hear that. It sounds like I'm a high and bloom homer right now saying that the Red Sox have four big reinforcements coming back, so we don't have to make a trade. And obviously, Chris Sale has been the Red Sox trade acquisition at the trade deadline each of the last few seasons. But the reality situation is this. The Red Sox do have four impact players coming back, and you really don't want to go out and sell the farm system to get back, let's say, a fourth or fifth starter when you have Hulk, Whitlock, and Sale all probably being added to the rotation when they get back. Maybe Whitlock goes to the bullpen, but Hulk and Sale will be back in the rotation when they come back. Whitlock is more effective as a reliever. I would throw him back in the bullpen. But that's the issue. A lot of people are upset with the Red Sox being underdogs and especially with the Red Sox stand right now. They're only two and a half games back of the playoffs right now in the AL. And I didn't really love that comment. I wish the Red Sox didn't consider themselves as underdogs, but sometimes you use the underdog mentality as a way to play with the chip in your shoulder and say, hey, everybody's doubting us. Let's go out there and let's make a run. That might be part of the reason High and Bloom said we're underdogs, maybe to try to get a spark from the locker room. But at the same time, you'd rather them say up there, we kind of like where we stood, and we obviously have four guys coming back that can make an impact. Rather than saying we're underdogs, I know a lot of people weren't fans of that line. With that being said, though, where the Red Sox stand right now, they're only two and a half games back in the playoffs. So High and Bloom saying we know where we stand right now and the where we stand in playoff odds according to fan graphs, and that's going to stop us from being aggressive at the trade deadline. I don't really like that line. When you have a chance right now with the Red Sox out with four guys coming back and you can potentially make a run, make it to the playoffs, and then make a run, I don't love that we're an underdog line. Even though I think High and Bloom has done a better job than most people are giving him credit for, I wasn't a big fan of the underdog line because even though the Red Sox technically are underdogs according to Fangraphs being 23.2% of a chance right now to make the playoffs, they're only two and a half games back of Toronto right now with three games against them this weekend. So that can really flip. You win two of three games in this series against Toronto this weekend at Fenway, those projections and odds can flip completely. Just because the odds are against you doesn't mean you go out there and say, oh, we already lost, so let's not go and try to make a run. That's not the case. The Angels have an 8.2% chance of making the playoffs right now, and they're one of the most aggressive teams at the trade deadline. Sometimes when the odds are against you and your back's against the wall and you have to go out there and make a run, you have no option but to be in win-now mode, that's when a lot of great things can happen, when you have no option but to take a big risk. And to one of my favorite movies, Summer Catch, which is a movie about the Cape Baseball League, and there's a hometown player, Freddie Prince Jr., who stars in the movie. He's named Ryan Dunn in the movie. He's playing in the Cape League for the Chatham A's. Jessica Bale is his girlfriend in the movie, and she says to him, if you want big rewards, you've got to take big risks. And she's right. At the end of the day, if you want to go and make a run, you have to take a shot. Even if the odds are against you and everybody disagrees with you, sometimes the best things in life can happen when you take that risk, get out of your comfort zone, and go and try and make a play. The Angels did just that. Ripped up their entire farm system just to try to compete right now because they know the circumstances 
are against them in the future to get Shohei Otani back, even though they still have a good shot at getting him, which right now I would say the three teams that have the best chance of getting Otani, I'd say the Dodgers, then I'd go to the San Francisco Giants. They've been very aggressive in trying to get a start in San Francisco. They tried with Aaron Judge and Carlos Correa this past year. Neither one really worked out. I think they're going to try heavily for Aaron Judge. And then the third team, I think the Angels. I give the Angels the third best odds to get Otani at this point. I think there's going to be other teams in the mix. I'm sure the New York Mets, even though they say they're rebuilding, they'll be in the mix. The Texas Rangers are probably in the mix, considering they're not afraid to spend money. I'm sure Seattle will be in the mix. They're going to try to make a case for him. San Diego may be in the mix, but considering all the money they've already put out and they still have to try to sign Juan Soto, I doubt they're going to go after Otani. And if they were to, they'd have to trade Juan Soto, I'd imagine. But there's going to be a lot of teams that go after Otani. That's just a reality. But the Angels see the circumstance and they said, let's go and take a big risk. Because if they want the big reward of trying to keep Otani and also trying to make a playoff run, you've got to take a big risk. So where the Red Sox stand right now, yeah, the odds technically are against them to make the playoffs. But the way I look at it is you're two and a half games out. You can't always read into the analytics. Two and a half games out, you get a feel for the season and the human aspect right now. Rather than looking at the numbers, just watching the Red Sox play, being two and four in the last six games, yeah, you'd say the odds are against the Red Sox. But right before that six-game stretch on the West Coast, they took two of two against the Braves. Things were looking up. The Red Sox were very hot going into the All-Star break and then after the All-Star break as well. Things were looking up for this Red Sox team. Even though they did lose four of the last six games, before this West Coast stretch, if you got a feel from the Red Sox and you were watching the games, you, you would say this Red Sox team is going to make the playoffs. With Sale, Whitlock, Hulk, and, and Story coming back, you would say this Red Sox team is a playoff team. And I still think they could be a playoff team. And as I said, I want the Angels and the Red Sox to both make the playoffs. Reality is, both teams aren't going to make it in. I'm going to side with the Red Sox making it in right now over the playoffs, over the Angels. I think the Angels will be in the mix, though. Come late September, I think they're going to be right there. We'll see what happens, obviously, there. But a lot of people are critical of High and Bloom and what he's done at the trade deadline. Obviously, last year was a mess, not trading Xander Bogats, Nate Valdi, and J.D. Martinez, and then letting them all walk in the offseason. And he really hasn't really pulled the trigger at the trade deadline. He really has been afraid to make a trade at the deadline, but not in the offseason. He's made a lot of big moves in the offseason, trading Mookie Betts, trading Andrew Benintendi, trading Hunter Renfro. Even though he's been hesitant to make trades at the trade deadline and has been a little bit indecisive, he has made moves in the offseason in the trade market. Whether or not people are fans of all those moves, the reality is he is more aggressive in the offseason making trades than he is in the middle of the season. And that's because the price of a player at the trade deadline is usually heavy because you're getting, let's say if there's a player that has one more year of control left at the trade after the trade deadline, so they have a year and a half basically of control, so they have the rest of this season and one more after this year, they're usually more expensive because you get an extra playoff run or a potential playoff run with that player. If you trade from in the offseason, it's just one year rather than one and a half years of control. Also, the Red Sox don't really want to trade their prospects, especially their top ones. And where the Red Sox stand right now, according to Fangraphs, they have the third best farm system in the game of baseball. So High and Bloom has done pretty good at that as well. And I made a few episodes over the last couple of weeks of where I stand with High and Bloom. I think he's done a better job than most people give him credit for. I'll say that. With that being said, I was hoping the Red Sox would try to add a bullpen piece at the deadline. Obviously, they didn't do that. But if you look at where the Red Sox need help, I think the bullpen might have been a better add. Because if you add, let's say, Tanner Houck and Chris Sale to the rotation, and maybe even Nick Pavetta stays in the rotation as well, that rotation's already solid enough, I would say. I think the bullpen could have used another piece. So I know a lot of people feel like the Red Sox should have made more moves, but if I'm adding Tanner Houck, Chris Sale, and Garrett Whitlock, I think that's a pretty good addition. I do believe in those three guys. And if I'm the Red Sox, adding Sale and Houck to the rotation with Bayo, Paxton, and Crawford, that's a solid five. Sending Whitlock to the bullpen, where he has had a lot of success in the past before he became a starter, 
and then leaving the main four bullpen pieces to be Whitlock, John Schreiber, Chris Martin, and Kenny Jansen, that's pretty solid. I know Schreiber has had a little bit of a shaky run since coming back, but he'll get himself back on track. It's been a while since he's been on the mound since May, so he'll get back on track. And that's a solid four-man bullpen right there. And you also have some other pieces in there as well, but Whitlock, Schreiber, Martin, and Jansen is pretty solid. And that leaves the question of whether or not the Red Sox will put Nick Pavetta in the starting rotation or in the bullpen. Maybe Nick Pavetta stays in the rotation as of right now and Hulk jumps to the bullpen for the time being. That might be the best move. So now I'm going to give you guys an update of where the Red Sox currently stand with injuries. Hulk and Whitlock just threw bullpens over this past week in Worcester. Chris Sale was on the mound for Worcester this past week, going two innings on the mound, giving up one hit, no earned runs, three strikeouts, two walks, with 40 pitches and 27 of those being strikes. His fastball got up to 97, so he looked pretty good in this outing. And since Tanner Hulk got hurt, which was a major loss for the Red Sox in their rotation, they're 22-16. and 16. So they have found a way to win with really just three main starters in their rotation, with those three being Paxton, Bayo, and Crawford. Staying afloat with only three starters and two openers every week is very hard to do. Very hard to do. And obviously Nick Pavetta being a guy that comes in after the opener for one of those two opening games, that's obviously a big help considering how good Pavetta's been out of the bullpen. But staying afloat with only three starters is huge. And then you get to add Chris Sale and maybe Tanner Houck or Garrett Whitlock. And we'll see what the Red Sox do with those two guys that I just mentioned, Whitlock and Houck. I think Houck's going to be in the starting rotation according to reports, so he'll probably go back to the rotation. Whitlock really hasn't been much reporting on there. I think he's a little bit further behind than Houck. I think Houck will be back sooner, so we'll have a decision about what Houck is going to be for the Red Sox, whether he's a starter or a bullpen piece in the next week or two when he comes back. And earlier in the week, Raphael Devis made a comment saying he wanted the Red Sox to make a deal for arms. And at the end of the day, the Red Sox stayed put, only acquiring Luis Arias from Milwaukee at the trade deadline. And everyone's mad about it, and I get it. I wanted the Red Sox to be biased at the end of the day. I said it in multiple episodes. I wanted this team to buy and try to make a run with this current team. But most importantly, I wanted them to not be sellers of the trade deadline. Even though I wanted them to be a buyer, I wanted them to not be sellers of the trade deadline. It was more important for this team to not be a sell at the deadline than be a buyer with those four pieces coming in. And even though it's a lazy narrative that I've said now multiple times, saying you have four players coming back from the injured list is like having four trade acquisitions. I know it's a lazy narrative, and especially with Chris Sale, it's been used as a narrative over the last few seasons that Chris Sale is going to save the season after the trade deadline. The reality is this. The Red Sox, where they currently stand, with those reinforcements coming in, have a good shot of making the playoffs. And even though I wanted another bullpen piece, maybe even a starter, which I would rather a bullpen piece than a starter for this rotation, considering Chris Sale, Hulk, Whitlock are coming back. I think two of those three will be in the starting rotation. So I really wanted a reliever over a starter. Maybe it would not have made as big of a difference getting one of those two things, whether it was a starter or a reliever. Especially if Chris Sale comes back and performs like he did right before he got injured, that would be huge for the starting rotation. And I think the Red Sox not selling at the trade deadline meant more than them not buying. I wanted them to buy... But with that being said, most importantly, I didn't want them to sell at the trade deadline. If not buying at the trade deadline meant they wouldn't sell, I was fine with that. If they just stand in the middle rather than picking left and left being to sell, I'm fine with them staying in the middle. I'm happy they didn't trade Justin Turner. I'm happy they didn't trade James Paxton. And most importantly, I'm happy they didn't trade Alex Verdugo with another year of control left because I think this team is capable. And according to reports, the Red Sox were deep in talks to send Justin Turner to Miami right before the trade deadline. But in that case, it would have meant the Red Sox gave up on this current season. And even though it might have strengthened the Red Sox farm system for years to come, being only two and a half games back in the playoffs right now, I think it's smart for the Red Sox to be biased at the trade deadline. 
but obviously they didn't end up being buyers, but they weren't sellers. And that's more important to me, them not being sellers at the trade deadline. And every team has different circumstances. Some teams are buying at the trade deadline, like the Angels, because they see the window closing with Shohei Otani on their teams. They're saying, let's buy right now. Some teams, like the Cincinnati Reds, said, hey, we have a chance of making the playoffs this season. We're way ahead of schedule, and we don't want to give up all of our prospects because this season might not be our year to make a legit run. Let's hold on to our prospects and build with this current team that we have and see what happens. This season probably isn't Cincinnati's year, so they said making the playoffs would just be a successful year on its own. So don't go out and sell the whole farm system. Some teams could have been like the Baltimore Orioles, a team that legitimately could win the World Series this season, but didn't want to pay the price of trading for a big piece at the trade deadline, like Dylan Cease, like Justin Verwinder. And that stops them from maybe getting what they need at the trade deadline. They needed a high-end start. They get Jack Flaherty, who's solid, but they could have gotten Dylan Cease or Justin Verwinder, especially considering how many prospects they had to sell. But as I said, every team is in a different circumstance, whether it's they're building for the future, but could potentially still compete right now like Cincinnati or Baltimore. And with that being said, I think Baltimore could legitimately win the World Series this year. I think they're going to be right there in the ALCS. My prediction right now is Texas versus Baltimore in the ALCS. And then some teams like Houston, teams that are just used to winning and going all in, and they said, screw it, let's send all our prospects elsewhere, and let's go and get piece of the trade deadline that we need to build around this team. They go out and get Justin Verwinder. So that's just a reality. Every team has a different timeline, and is under different circumstances. So now I'm going to give you my thoughts on the trade deadline as a whole. And the way I see it, it was underwhelming to some degree. Imagine if the New York Mets didn't trade Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer. It would have been a lot more boring of a trade deadline. And there was a lot of buzz in the last 10 minutes before the deadline that James Paxton could be on the move to the Dodgers. Dylan Cease could be on the move to the Orioles. That was a heating up story right before the trade deadline. And everyone on Chicago was available according to reports, except Luis Robert in the last 10 minutes. So everyone was available. Tim Anderson stays in Chicago. Dylan Cease stays in Chicago. Oli Jimenez stays in Chicago. Yasmani Grandal stays put in Chicago. And then Liam Hendricks also stayed put in Chicago as well. And I thought he could have been potentially moved to the trade deadline. And then reports just came out in the last day or two that he would be getting Tommy John surgery, unfortunately, and would be missing the entire season in 2024. So that's obviously a tough report there. My thoughts are with Liam Hendricks. He did everything he could to get back to the game of baseball with everything he went through this past year. Gets back on the field and then now has to get Tommy John surgery. So that's obviously an awful story there. But the comeback's going to be very strong for him and I'm looking forward to seeing him back on the mound in 2025. But I think the trade deadline as a whole was a little bit underwhelming because before the trade deadline, a week before, there was talks about Cody Bellinger, Marcus Stroman, James Paxton, Eduardo Rodriguez, Justin Verlander, Max Scherzer, Juan Soto, Josh Hader, Blake Snell, all potentially getting moved. And a lot of those guys I just named ended up staying put, except Scherzer and Verwinder. And that's because every team is under different circumstances. As I said, if you look at what was going on in Chicago, they were winning a lot of games recently, so the Cubs didn't want to trade Marcus Stroman, who was struggling in July, and they didn't want to trade Cody Bellinger, who has had an absolute tear of the last month for the Chicago Cubs. So they, they really didn't want to break up that team, especially considering how close they are to the playoffs, and I get that. But the reality is it was a little bit underwhelming of a trade deadline with all the buzz in the last week and even in the last 10 minutes that Dylan Cease could be traded. I was looking forward to seeing what that package could have been that Baltimore could have sent. Baltimore could really have gotten any play they wanted at the trade deadline. But the reality is they don't want to trade their future prospects because they know those guys coming up in the next few seasons are going to be special talents and they're going to be a powerhouse four years to come in the American League. So it could have been a smart decision by Baltimore anyways holding on to their prospects. Even though I think they could legitimately win this year and compete for a World Series, 
Maybe they weighed the next five years over just this current season because they, maybe they said, even though we have a good shot of winning this year if we make this trade, under the next four years after this, would give us a better chance of winning multiple World Series. Who knows? They're going to compete, though, four years to come in the American League. So now I'm going to break down some deals at the trade deadline. First being Justin Verlander being traded back to the Houston Astros. The Mets will send $53 million to the Astros and will pay 35 of the $58 million he is owed from the remainder of this season in the 2024 season. So 35 of $58 million the Mets will be paying the Astros. And then they also sent $18 million that would cover $17.5 million of his 2025 option if it is ultimately exercised. And that option will be exercised if he reaches 140 innings pitched and passes a physical. So that's another $17.5 million that Steve Cohen sent to Houston in this deal. Leaving Houston to pay just $40.5 million for two years of Justin Verwinder. And the Mets are spending $53 million to make that happen. So, I mean, the Mets really just valued spending money right now to try to build their farm system. It kind of worked. And the future of the Mets right now is definitely in question. I know Max Scherzer did just make comments earlier in the week that he had a talk with Billy Epler, the GM of the Mets, and he said, what's the deal with this team? Are we going to try to win right now? Are we going to try to win next year? Or are we just ripping things up? And Billy Epler said, we're really building for the 2025-2026 seasons. Basically just throwing away the remainder of the 2023 season, which was probably the smart thing to do considering the Mets are far out and they didn't really have a shot of making the playoffs or at least a good shot of making the playoffs. They were still far out at the trade deadline. And then also throwing away the 2024 season because they still had a year of control on Max Scherzer and Justin Verwinder. Both those guys being gone now. But I think it was a smart move by the Mets to rip things up. And I'll get into that a little bit more when I give winners and loses at the trade deadline. So one big move that could have been huge in the landscape of the game of baseball would have been Eduardo Rodriguez being traded to the Los Angeles Dodgers. That move ends up falling apart due to Eduardo Rodriguez not waiving his no-trade clause. He had a no-trade clause for 10 teams, with the Dodgers being listed as one of them. According to reports, he didn't really want to go to the West Coast. He wanted to stay closer to his family. So that's part of the reason he stays in Detroit for the remainder of the season. But with that being said, I think Detroit should have talked to him before the trade deadline and said, hey, who are the 10 teams you have listed that you don't want to go to? Rather than wasting time making a trade with the Dodgers that's in place, an agreement between the Dodgers and the Tigers, they agreed on a deal, and then waiting until Eduardo Rodriguez to say, oh yeah, I don't really want to go there. You should have talked to Eduardo Rodriguez before the trade deadline to see where he didn't want to go so you don't waste time. Because once Erod says no to that trade, the Tigers only had an hour or two to try to figure out a deal that could get Eduardo Rodriguez on a different team because they know he's going to opt out after the season's over. So that's obviously a tough situation there for the Tigers. Next up is Michael Lorenzen. He was traded to the Phillies from the Detroit Tigers. Detroit sent Howie Lee, who is a prospect in the minor league system for Philly. I think he's going to be a very good player in the major leagues one day. He's the number six prospect now in Detroit's farm system. And in high A this season, he has five home runs, a 283 batting average with a 773 OPS. I think he's going to be a very good hitter for average one day in the major leagues. So that could be a potential really good deal there for Detroit. Mike Lorenzen's on an expiring deal. Philly needed help in their starting rotation. They get that piece in Lorenzen. He's 5-7 and seven on the year before the trade to Philly with a 3.58 ERA and obviously now helps Philly in an area of need in their rotation. Another big deal was Jake Berger being traded to the Miami Marlins. The White Sox trading him out even though he still has another four years of control through the 2028 season. So he has control for the 2024, 2025, 2026, 2027, and 2028 season. So not even four, it's five more years of control. And this is a very big power hitter who has 25 home runs on the season with a 218 batting average and an 813 OPS. Very strong power, five years of control. So you wonder why the White Sox would trade him in this deal. 
Well, they do get back a very good left-handed pitching prospect in Jake Eater. He's a minor leaguer, very promising prospect with a 2.6 ERA and 24 starts in the minor leagues. Miami, they were in need of bats at the trade deadline, and they go out and get a big one in Jake Berger. That was a very interesting deal, but could potentially be a win-win deal there. I think Miami gets a good power hitter there in Berger, obviously, but they also do send out a good prospect. They do have a very deep farm system of prospects, and even on their major league roster as well, young starting pitching. So. It does make sense for Miami to send out some pitching prospects considering they do have a plethora of young pitching there in their farm system and on their major league roster. Another big trade was G-Man Choi and Rich Hill being traded from the Pittsburgh Pirates to the San Diego Padres. The Pirates received first baseman Alfonso Rivas in this deal along with Jackson Wolf. He's a double-A left-handed pitcher. And then 17-year-old outfielder Estuar Suero. Apologize there if I messed up his name. Wolf was the 16th ranked prospect in San Diego's farm system. Now is on the Pittsburgh Pirates in their farm system. Now, G-Man Choi on the air is hitting just 205 in limited at-bats. Does help them out, though. They did want to add another bat to their lineup. So he's an extra guy that could maybe be a DH to them. He could play a little first base as well. And then Hill is a solid middle-of-the-rotation option. But considering how deep San Diego's rotation is, maybe Hill ends up being just a bullpen piece for them. I did say when Hill signed... With the Pirates, and I believe it was March, I said, I think this is just a deal that Pittsburgh gets half a season out of and then trades him at the trade deadline for prospects. And that ends up being the case in what happened. I did want him to be a Boston Red Sox, but happy to see Rich Hill get another chance and even have a chance now to compete for a World Series title, maybe with San Diego. Even though San Diego is still a little bit of a ways to go, they still are a team that's competing right now to try to make the playoffs. And obviously, Pittsburgh wasn't going anywhere the rest of the season. This is now Rich Hill's 13th team in the major leagues, which is one shy of tying Edwin Jackson for the most teams played for in the major leagues. Edwin Jackson played for 14 in his career. Rich Hill now is playing for his 13th team. Another deal was Paul DeYoung being traded to the Toronto Blue Jays from the St. Louis Cardinals. With Bo Bichette being hurt, it makes sense for Toronto to go out and get a shortstop. DeYoung now will start at shortstop for Toronto. Toronto sent a minor league pitcher in return. Matt Svansson, who is a right-handed pitching prospect, will be going to the St. Louis Cardinals in this deal. Speaking of the Cardinals, they made another move as well, sending Jack Flaherty to the Baltimore Orioles in return. The Cardinals get... Baltimore's number 16 overall prospect, Cesar Prito, who's an infield, and they also got a left-handed pitching prospect from Baltimore and Drew Rum. He's the number 18 prospect in Baltimore's system. And then also right-handed pitcher, Zach Showalter. Very good move here by St. Louis. Flaherty was leaving anyways after the season's over, so getting the 16th and 18th prospects in a very deep farm system, that's a pretty good move. Flaherty on the year is a 4.43 ERA through 20 starts, and those are his 20 starts in St. Louis. He did start already for Baltimore yesterday, having a very strong outing in his debut for the Orioles against the Blue Jays. The Orioles end up winning this game 6-1. Flaherty was 6 innings strong on the mound, giving up 4 hits, 1 run, 8 strikeouts, 2 walks, and 92 pitches. He is now 8-6 on the season, so he had a very good ERA through July, 3.03 ERA in the month of July in five outings, and now he looks even better in an Orioles uniform. So I think it's a good move by Baltimore, but I think they could have added even more to the trade deadline. So now I'm going to break down my winners and losers at the trade deadline, starting off with the winners, and that'll be the Texas Rangers as one of the winners that I'm going to talk about. The Rangers got Max Scherzer, Jordan Montgomery, Aroldis Chapman, Chris Stratton, and Austin Hedges at the trade deadline. 
Austin Hedges helps out at a position of need. They need another catcher since Jonah Himes hurt. That makes sense. They need help in the rotation with Nate Evaldi being hurt and Jacob DeGrom being out for the season. Max Scherzer is a good add, even if he did struggle in his debut for the Rangers. They get Jordan Montgomery, another starting pitcher, and then did add to their bullpen getting Chris Stratton and Rosa Chapman. Over the last two winters in free agency, Texas spent over $750 million to sign Corey Seager, Marcus Simeon, Nate Evaldi, John Gray, and Jacob DeGrom. And now they're aggressive at the trade deadline. And it makes sense for why they are aggressive. They haven't made the playoffs since 2016, and they are going all in right now, which I love to see. I love to see them going all in. The Rangers right now find themselves at a position that they could actually potentially win the World Series at, which I think they do have one of the most talented rosters in the game of baseball. I think they have the most talented roster in the American League. And looking at where they currently stand at 63-46 and on the season and a game and a half up on Houston, they were in a position to go out and buy and try to make a run. So props to Texas for ripping up the farm system and sending out some of the top prospects to go and land Max Scherzer, Jordan Montgomery, among others. That's huge. And I'm excited to see what this team does in October baseball. Another winner is another team here from the AL West, and that is the Houston Astros landing Kendall Graveman at the trade deadline in a trade with the Chicago White Sox. They sent Corey Lee to Chicago in return. He's now the number 14 prospect in the White Sox farm system, a catching prospect that does have a promising future. And then they also got right-handed pitcher Justin Verlander from the New York Mets, sending out Drew Gilbert and Ryan Clifford. So they were very aggressive, obviously, going out and adding a starting pitcher, Justin Verlander. They didn't really care about sending away the number one prospect and the number four prospect in this deal. Clifford probably would have been the number two prospect in Houston's farm system after they updated farm systems, which I believe they do after the trade deadline. Clifford probably would have been the number two prospect, according to reports. He was the fourth one, though, I believe, before the season began. So it's a very good add there for the Houston Astros. They get a very good ace. And Justin Verlander are now set to make another postseason run. A team that's already made many postseason runs over the last six years, including four AL pennants and two World Series titles, they're adding even more. Adding to their bullpen and rotation, two very big needs, and they also do land two former Astros in those two big needs. They add Justin Verlander and Kendall Graveman, both of which have played in Houston before. So now they go back to Houston and try to make another run. Another winner, the Los Angeles Angels, yet again, Another team in the AL West. Adding Lucas Giolito, CJ Krohn, Randall Grigic, Eduardo Escobar, Mike Moustakis, Reynaldo Lopez. This team is going all in. And even if this gamble does not work, it shows that Otani, being a free agent at the end of the season, made this club have to make something happen. It had to make this club serious about contending right now and trying to build around them in the current moment. And that's what they're trying to do. And it seems like the New York Mets could be potentially out on Otani. And San Diego could be out as well. They could be priced out due to all the money they spent on Xander Bogots, Fernando Tatis, Manny Machado, Hugh Davis, and still have to figure out what they want to do with Juan Soto and Blake Snell. They're going to be priced out. Probably that's one less team that could go get Shohei Otani. San Diego's allocated too much money elsewhere, and then the New York Mets even as well. They could be potentially building for 2025, which I don't know if I really believe that report, but that's what Max Scherzer said. So as of right now, I'd say the Dodgers, Giants, and Angels are the three destinations for Shohei. The three best destinations for him right now. And the Angels see that, and they said, we have to go out and take a big risk. Even this gamble doesn't work, their window's closing. Why not try to make a postseason push? If Otani leaves after the season's over, their window closes for the foreseeable future anyways. And that's why they traded all these prospects to go out and land Giolito, Lopez, Crone, Grigic, Moustakis, Escobar. They know their window's closing, and they went all in. And that's what I respect about this team. I respect teams 
that say, hey, let's go all in right now and be in win now mode because it takes guts. It takes a lot of fearlessness to go out and do what the Angels just did, especially a front office that's been struggling to try to make the playoffs. They've only made the playoffs once in the Mike Trout era and none in the Shohei Otani era. They know the clock's ticking with these two on the same team. And they said, let's go and try to make a postseason push. I respect it. I'm rooting for this Angels team heavily, and I hope to make the playoffs. I really do. Even though they do a very tough stretch of games now in the month of August, I want this team to make the playoffs. Another winning team at the trade deadline was New York Mets. And even though it hurts her right now, trading Max Scherzer, Justin Verlander, Tommy Pham, Mark Hanna, David Robinson, it is a loss for the rest of the season, losing those guys, and maybe even next season as well. But it was a smart thing for this franchise to do. They traded Max Scherzer, Justin Verlander, David Robinson, and turned them into Luis Angel Acuna, who was the number one prospect in Texas's farm system, now the number two prospect in the Mets' farm system. They got Drew Gilbert from Houston, who was the number one prospect in Houston's farm system, now the Mets' number four prospect. They got Drew Clifford, who was the number two prospect in Houston's updated farm system rankings, now number six in the Mets' farm system. They got Marco Vargas, now the number nine prospect in the Mets' farm system. They went out and they built this farm system. Overnight, honestly, the farm system is looking very strong. And even though there's some temporary growing pains in the present, I think this will pay off in a few years. Even though they spent $500 million on this payroll with luxury taxes and all the free agents they went out and signed, including Justin Verlander and getting Kodai Senga from Japan, this team really went all in, even trying to land Carlos Correa in the process. And that really worked out for this team. That would have been another monster contract on a team that was having a disappointing season. And maybe he would have helped out this lineup, I'm sure. But the reality is, they didn't really have to spend money on another big player, especially with this team struggling and where they're at right now. And just to get all those top prospects back, they had to punt on this season completely, obviously. And they also had to punt a little bit on their money, which Steve Cohen, billionaire, he's not really too worried. But they did send $85 million with Max Scherzer, Justin Verlander, Tommy Pham. But in doing so, you get better prospects back by sending money with those monster contracts for Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer. By sending money with those players, you get better prospects back in return, which is obviously something that the Mets favored, and it was a smart thing to do in my opinion. The farm system is now getting to the level of the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Baltimore Orioles, and that was over one trade deadline essentially. Even though they've been building the farm system over the last couple seasons, obviously doing very well in the draft over the last few seasons, getting a very good catching prospect in Kevin Parada in the first round out of Georgia Tech last year, and then even adding... A shortstop at Jet Williams, who was very young last year, being drafted out of high school with a 14th overall pick. They also got Blake Tidwell in the 2022 draft as well, a right-handed pitcher from Tennessee. This team's really built their farm system over the last year or so. And with this trade deadline, it got even better. So I think this was a very good trade deadline for the Mets. Even though it's hurting for now and it's a loss for right now, it's a win for the future. And I think it was a smart thing for this team to do. The St. Louis Cardinals, another team that was a winner at the trade deadline. They traded Jordan Montgomery, Jordan Hicks, Paul DeYoung and Jack Flaherty and turned them into two infielders, a catcher, seven pitchers, which they really want to rebuild their farm system pitching prospects, and they did that. And overall, this trade deadline, they added four prospects that are now in their top 10 in their home entire farm system. So they did, they did pretty well for themselves in this trade deadline. Their trade deadline goal was to get rid of their expiring contracts and get future pitching, and they did that. They did that. A lot of expiring deals are moved by St. Louis, another team that's having a disappointing season like the New York Mets, and they went out and said, hey, the season might not be ours. Let's punt, get prospects back in return, and they did just that. The Mets, obviously a disappointing season for them, having the highest payroll in the game of baseball, but it was a smart thing for them to do to trade what they did. Even though it does hurt for the current, I think it's going to be smart for them in the future. 
So now I'm going to jump in and talk about the losers at the trade deadline. I'm going to start off with the New York Yankees, a team that should have been selling at the trade deadline. And I said that in a few episodes before the trade deadline. I recorded probably three episodes over the last 14 days or so about the trade deadline and some predictions. And I said the Yankees should have been sellers in every one of them. They should have been sellers, I said, but they were probably going to be buyers. And where do they end up? In the middle. Really doing small moves, getting Kenyon Middleton and Spencer Howard. But they should have been selling. They should have tried to move Isaiah Kainafalefa, even though he's really found a role in the Yankees lineup now. They should have moved Harrison Bader as well. Severino. Luis Severino is a pending free agent. And even though Sevy isn't the player he once was, maybe he'll find it else, elsewhere. Where the trade market was, if you were a starting pitcher, even like Lance Lynn, and you were struggling, if you had promise in years past, teams are still trading for you. Brett Hand was even traded for at the trade deadline. And as I said... Lance Lynch, struggling on the year, was traded for at the trade deadline. Even though Severino isn't the player he once was, he's a pending free agent, and if he isn't going to re-sign in New York, he should have been moved. Where the Yankees currently stand, they're 57-52, two and a half games back of the AL wildcard. But watching the Yankees play, you'd think they're 12 games back with their non-existent energy, and they have a lot of injuries as well. A ton of injuries. Now, most recently, with Anthony Rizzo going on the IL with concussion-like symptoms. And they lost their starting catcher for the season, Jose Trevino will be out the rest of the year. This team is just a mess. They had too many holes. And rather than just being sellers at the trade deadline, they chose to be stuck in the middle. They weren't buyers. I mean, they really just got very small returns. But they should have been sellers. So the Yankees were losers in my eyes. Even though two and a half games back, it's a very different circumstance than what the Red Sox are under right now. The Red Sox are two games back of Toronto for the last AL Wildcard spot right now. The Yankees are just two and a half games back, so just a half game behind the Sox. But watching this team, and especially with all the injuries, this team, I don't think is going anywhere. So they should have been sellers of the trade deadline. That's why the Yankees are a trade deadline loser in my eyes. Another trade deadline loser was the Cleveland Guardians. Because the Cleveland Guardians right now are 53-56, two games back of the Minnesota Twins. Even though they've lost three in a row, they're still in the mix right now to try to make the playoffs and win the AL Central, a division that's just been a mess all season. But they decide to trade some of their best players. Trading their first baseman and Josh Bell to Miami, getting back Gene Segura and Khalil Watson. And Josh Bell on the air hasn't had as good of a season as he had in the last few years. He has 12 home runs on the season with a 241 batting average and a 724 OPS. But nevertheless, he is their starting first baseman. Now he's gone. Segura's struggling on the season, a 219 batting average with three home runs. So it's not like they got a great return. And then Watson, in 157 minor league games, has a 234 batting average and 19 home runs. He was a Marlins' number 11 prospect in their farm system and was a 2021 first-round pick. So they do get a guy back that was a first-round pick just a couple years ago. So even though they do build for the future getting back a prospect that's number 11 in Miami's farm system, which will be smart in a couple years, they're punting on this current season and making a playoff run with this current team. And even though I don't think this team is capable of making a run, you're only two games back in the playoffs. And you're just punting on this season and saying, screw it. And even though, as I said, it might be smart for the future, the reality is you're only two games back of the playoffs. So it is a hide situation just to say, hey, we're just going to say screw the season, run it with whatever we have left after the trade deadline and see what happens. They also dealt Aaron Savali to the Tampa Bay Rays for a top first baseman prospect in Kyle Manzato from the Rays farm system. And even though I like this deal both ways, it's a sign of the Cleveland Guardians not trying to make a run this year for the playoffs. Savali still had a couple years left of control and was looking really good right before he was dealt. That's them even giving up somewhat on the future as well. They see Savali as a high price tag right now, considering Tampa Bay needed to add to their starting rotation, and they said, screw it, let's trade Savali, get back a top prospect, and see what happens. They also traded Ahmed Rosario to the Los Angeles Dodgers 
in exchange for Noah Syndergaard, a pitcher that's been struggling all season for the Dodgers. So another trade deadline loser, the Minnesota Twins. They traded Jorge Lopez for Dylan Floro. Floro on the season is a 4.54 ERA for the Marlins. He does have no earned runs, though, in two games for Minnesota so far since being traded. But I think the Twins could have taken advantage of Cleveland being ineffective of the trade deadline and not really trying to make a run right now. Minnesota could have been aggressive, maybe. And I'm not saying go out and trade all your top prospects. Go out and buy a little bit. Because Cleveland's sending major league talent elsewhere and are choosing to give up on this current season to build for the future. Minnesota could have done either the same and traded some of their starting pitching or went out and been aggressive and bought at the trade deadline. But they didn't do that. Another loser at the trade deadline was the Detroit Tigers. The situation with Erod is tough for that Tigers front office. Not being able to trade Erod because you didn't know he didn't want to go to the Dodgers is a brutal hit for Detroit. They should have known where he didn't want to go before the trade deadline, so they weren't wasting time on the phone with the Dodgers. And I was wondering what that trade package would have been. Obviously, the Dodgers, very deep farm system, and they have had one for years now. They could have gone out and got anybody they wanted, so I'm sure that package for Erod was deep. I'm sure it was a great trade package. So that's a tough situation there for Detroit. Erod ends up staying put there, and it is his right with a no trade clause in his contract. And now he's going to opt out anyways after the season's over and leave for free agency. And Detroit could have had a bunch of prospects in return if they knew that he didn't want to go to the Dodgers. Maybe they could have found a trade elsewhere. And let's say he wanted to go to the Dodgers and said, yeah, you know, I would go to the Dodgers. That could have been a great return for Detroit and even built their farm system even more. A team that's struggling in the current and trying to build for the future, that would have been a great return. They're trading Erod and getting prospects back. So Detroit's a loser at the trade deadline just because of the situation with Erod. They didn't know. They didn't want to go to the Dodgers. And they waste a potential chance of getting prospects back in return for him, knowing he's going to leave anyways after the season's over. So now I'm going to talk about teams that are in the middle. They weren't losers, but they weren't winners. The Baltimore Orioles being the first one. Jack Flaherty's a good ad, but I would have loved the Orioles to get Eduardo Rodriguez, Dylan Cease, or Justin Verlander. They had the prospects to go out and get anybody they wanted, and they chose to, to kind of stay put. They did get Jack Flaherty, which is a good ad, as I said, but they could have went out and got a high-end starter, a number one like Justin Verlander. But they said, hey, we want to build still for our future and not give up our prospects and say we think we can win for the next seven, eight seasons with those guys coming up. Let's not go out and send everybody elsewhere which honestly probably is a smart thing to do for an eight-year window. But for this current season, it shows they weren't really aggressive to try to win right now. Even though this team is capable, as I said, of making a run, they just kind of stayed put at the trade deadline. Even though they did get Jack Flaherty, they could have gone out and got a high-end starter. Even though Flaherty's probably now their number one or two, he's probably the two or three in most rotations, they could have really gotten Justin Verwinder if they wanted, or Cease, or Eduardo Rodriguez. But at the end of the day, I put this team in the middle because they did do a good thing getting Jack Flaherty, but they also could have gotten more. But with that being said, I understand why they did it because this is a team that has the deepest farm system in the game of baseball and eight top 100 prospects. It makes sense for this team not to trade all the top prospects and still build to the future. They can still make a run right now and still build to the future. This was their chance, though, to separate themselves from the rest of the American League for this current season and add to the rotation, a big position of need, obviously. But they favored... Building four years to come and separating themselves from the American League four years to come by keeping their current prospects. And I respect that. I respect that. Flaherty, as I said, is a good get, but a high-end starter is something they needed most. And they had the farm system to do that and go out and get that. But it makes sense why they didn't do that. So I respect Baltimore for staying put. Even though they could have gotten anybody they wanted, as I've said now 10 times, 
they chose to build for the future and keep those prospects, which probably ends up being the smart thing to do for the next seven or eight seasons. But this current season, they could have still maybe have won, and they still might win with their current roster. Who knows? I mean, anybody can win once you make the playoffs. But they would have had even better of a chance if they went out and got Justin Verlander, let's say, or Dylan Cease, or Erod. But obviously the trade package would have been very, very costly for those three guys. The San Diego Padres in the middle. And I do respect their respective going all in. But in my opinion, the smart thing for them to do would have been to avoid the Hail Mary and send Blake Snell and Josh Hader elsewhere and build for next year a little. Since they're currently 54 and 55, four games back in the wild card, they still have a ways to go to make up things there in the NL, a tight wild card race there in the NL. The Reds, the Marlins, the Diamondbacks, the Cubs, Padres are all separated by four games or less. That's obviously a tight race, just like the American League, though. Between the Blue Jays, Red Sox, Yankees, Mariners, and Angels, all of those teams are separated by four games or less as well. So it's a tight race there, but San Diego chose to go out and try to add to the trade deadline, getting G-Man Choi, getting Rich Hill, rather than sending away their expiring contracts like Blake Snell and Josh Hader. And even though it would have been hard to trade those two players, considering Blake Snell is the MLB best in ERA right now, and Josh Hader is one of the best relievers in the game of baseball, and he's back to what he was a couple seasons ago, it would have been hard to trade those two pieces with them still having a chance of making the playoffs. And they're still not completely done, as I said. There's still a lot of time for this team to turn things around. But considering how they slept all season, it's very hard just to flip a switch in the last 50 games and be in win-now mode and say, let's win the World Series. Because they struggled for most of the season. They're still under 500 as we currently speak. They're one game under right now. Still four games back in the National League wildcard race. They still have a ways to go. It's still a long shot for them, but who knows? Maybe to work out for them holding on to Josh Hader and Blake Snell. If they want to win this current season and make a run and do the Hail Mary, they had to keep those two players on their current roster, considering that's their best reliever and one of the best relievers in the game of baseball, and that's their best starter as well, one of the best starters in the game of baseball this season, holding the best ERA for starting pitching in the major leagues this season. So it makes sense in that perspective. So I have the Padres in the middle. Even though I respect their decision to go all in and try to make a run, it might have been a smarter decision for them to trade their expiring contracts like Blake Snell and Josh Hader, especially considering they would have had very great returns on those two players. And they're both on expiring deals. That probably means they're not coming back to San Diego. But with that being said, if you trade those players, it means you're punting on this current season probably. And that's something the Padres didn't want to do. So I put them in the middle. The Dodgers, I have them in the middle as well. They probably should have got another high-end pitcher. They tried to get James Paxson. They tried to get Eduardo Rodriguez. They ended up missing on both. So now they'll have to roll with Clayton Kershaw, Julio Arias, Tony Gonsolin, Bobby Miller, and Emma Chien. And hopefully they'll get Walker Bueller back soon. We'll see what happens there. But now they have to roll with that starting rotation. Even though it's a good starting rotation, Gonsolin's not had as good of a season this year. Arias has struggled with injuries. Kershaw's obviously getting older. And then Bobby Miller and Emma Chien are two very young prospects that obviously haven't pitched any big games in their career considering they never played in the postseason yet. The Dodgers also did land Ryan Diabro and Lance Lynn at the deadline. Lance Lynn has been struggling on the air, but the Dodgers do find ways to get the most out of their players. Ryan Brazier has been one of the most effective relievers in the game of baseball for them since being picked up after the Red Sox DFA'd him. And then also J.D. Martinez has turned back time. Jason Haywood has turned back time. And now Kiki Hernandez has looked pretty good in his return to the Dodgers as well. So we'll see what happens there with Lance Lynn. They usually do go for much more, though, at the trade deadline, but... They could be building, though, as I said, for next year and maybe trying to get Shohei Otani. The Cincinnati Reds, another team in the middle. They didn't add anything except a reliever in Sam Maul, who should help them. But at the same time, they didn't really touch their prospect pool. They didn't really want to go out and get a big name because they knew the price would be too big, like Baltimore as well. 
And honestly, I feel like it's the smartest thing for them to do. Not trade their prospects and just ride the season. Since I think this team isn't going to make a deep run in the playoffs. Is it fun as a fan to see them not go out and be aggressive with the trade deadline? No. But the reality of the situation, in my opinion, is that this team has exceeded expectations already. And I don't think they're really capable of making a deep run in the playoffs. So keep their current prospects. And let's see what happens over the next few seasons when all the, pro- all the prospects come up. And with that being said... I have favorite teams making the playoffs, and this team could still make the playoffs right now. I do favor making the playoffs, and this team is talented right now where they currently stand to make it into October baseball. And of course, I always want to try to make it in. I've said it now multiple times this episode. They're in a position right now to try to make it into the playoffs. But there also is a price at the same time. And where the Reds and Baltimore Orioles currently stand, they're in the middle of being able to compete right now, but also still trying to build for the future. And with that being said, They didn't want to give up all the prospects that it would have taken to go out and get a big pitcher. So we'll see what happens, though, with the Cincinnati Reds and Baltimore Orioles. But I think a couple seasons from now, I think we'll look back and say it might have been the smartest thing for them to do, not go out and trade for a rental that's going to leave them anyways after the season's over. But with that being said, they do still have a capable roster, especially Baltimore, to make a run in the postseason. Anyways, that will conclude this episode. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to this. As always, I appreciate it. And hope you guys have a good one. Enjoy your weekend, and I will see you guys again soon. Thank you.